So Dr. Joel Beakey has written a book entitled Striving Against Satan. And in the opening chapter, he writes the following words. He says, if you are a true believer, Satan hates you. He hates you because you bear the image of Christ, because you are the peculiar workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus unto good works, and because you were snatched from his power. You deserted Satan, and you fled his territory. By grace, you acknowledge Christ as your Lord and Master. You testify with Peter, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Satan hates you because Christ is within you and because you love Christ. And now Satan wants you back. As Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. So Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Do not overestimate or underestimate Satan. He is not a fallen deity. He is not God. He is only a fallen angel. He is not almighty, yet Satan is a powerful enemy. John Blanchard writes, We are opposed by a living, intelligent, resourceful, and cunning enemy who can outlive the oldest Christian, outwork the busiest, outfight the strongest, and outwit the wisest. The battle against Satan and his devils is fierce. It's from Joel Beakey. Peter is closing up his letter to the Christian exiles. And you remember the theme of exile from chapter 1 is that this is not our permanent home. For a Christian to live in the world, he has to have his eyes set on the promises of God that salvation is leading us to our eternal home. And so Peter saves this section for the very end of his book. Next week we will conclude with the last couple of verses in Peter. But this is the last teaching portion that Peter writes for these churches in Turkey. And what we see in this passage is very eye-catching. There's a lion who is roaring, and he is seeking to devour people. And so you can imagine a lion with his mouth gaping open, and the roar is coming, and perhaps you're standing in front of it, and you can feel the roar against your chest. Peter says that the lion is Satan, and by the context of this passage, those whom he is seeking to devour are you and I, Christians. Satan wants to devour us. So that's what we're studying this morning. How are we supposed to respond? Three points to the sermon. Let me give you them as we go through. The first point is simply this. Satan's desire is to devour you. Satan's desire is to devour you. Now, to unpack this, let's ask a few questions. First is this, who is Satan? Uh, we're going to look at a few passages this morning as we look at this enemy of ours, this lion who's seeking to devour us. So we go to Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 15. Who is Satan? Here's what the text says. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, that is Ezekiel, and son of man, that was a title for Ezekiel, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, 
Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Now, you'll notice that this passage is directly addressed to the king of Tyre. However, as you read this passage, you see that there are statements that go beyond the king of Tyre. And that's because in Hebrew literature, there will sometimes be a portion where you are speaking directly to an individual. Yes, you are speaking directly to an individual, but you are also speaking more fully to the person behind that individual. So in this case, Ezekiel's speaking to the king of Tyre, but he's actually speaking about the one who is behind the king of Tyre, and that is Satan himself. And what we see here is God created Satan. He's a cherub, as you can see, an, an angelic being. The king of Tyre was not an angel. He was the signet or the seal or this highest level of perfection, being full of beauty and full of wisdom. The text says that he was in Eden. This king was not in Eden. He was in Tyre. That takes us back to Genesis chapter 3. He was surrounded by beautiful stones, and he was at one point in the presence of God until unrighteousness was found in him. So here we see that God created Satan as an angelic being. Our second text is Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Again, this is a passage that's written to a king. It's the king of Babylon. But it's clear that it's written to the one behind the king of Babylon. That is Satan himself. And what we see is Satan sinned against God with this arrogant desire to elevate himself to be like God. And in response, God casts Satan and a host of his following angels out of heaven. We go to our third passage, Matthew chapter 25. Here we see his doom as we read about or we sang about in the first song. Then he will say to those on his left, this is Christ, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. So here's a conclusion about who Satan is. His end result and the angels that follow him is going to be certain judgment. But for now, Satan is free to roam. We see this in other passages throughout the Bible. I didn't put them up on the screen for you, but you remember Job where Satan comes before God and God asks him, have you considered my servant Job? 
Or in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, there's a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. They sold a large chunk of land. They took the money, and instead of just being honest with it, they presented themselves in the temple area as having given it all to the church, like some sort of pious perspective. And Peter asks the question, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Satan was at work. We see him in the life of Jesus where he came to Jesus in the wilderness and tempted Jesus with sin. A passage in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is speaking to one of the churches and he says, Satan is going to put some of you in prison and even lead some of you to death in 10 days. So Satan is alive and he is roaming. Now, Will you specifically face Satan today, maybe even in your lifetime? I don't think so, specifically. In World War II, very few soldiers came into contact with Adolf Hitler. Very few fought him specifically, but every soldier who went to war fought against Hitler because Hitler sent out his orders through generals, lieutenants, and soldiers, and everyone on the allied side was facing the Axis powers. And in that sense, they faced Hitler. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So Satan is not omnipresent. He is only in one location at a time. Uh, He can't move around. He can't be at your house and at my house at the same time. So the chances that you and I are specifically fighting Satan, the being, this week are probably minimal, but we are all fighting the schemes of Satan as his orders come down and are carried out through his following angels. And so Paul goes on to say that we wrestle against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So at any given time, you and I can be wrestling with or facing the schemes that Satan is aiming to use in order to devour you. And perhaps some of us might face Satan specifically. I'm not saying none of us ever will. But keep in mind, he is an angelic being and he is only in one location at a time. So here's Satan. Today, he is throwing his schemes at the world, and we are facing them. They're like nets that are being cast over the world, and we are tangling through life in those nets. And so this text says he is like a roaring lion with his schemes seeking to devour people. So it leads us to another question. How does Satan devour people? Again, notice the imagery. He's presented as a lion, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter has specifically led him, or the Spirit has specifically led Peter to present Satan this way, as a lion. And and it makes me ask the question, why would you present Satan as a lion in this text? Don't be confused. There is another lion in Scripture who is roaring and who will win. It's the Lion of Judah the Son of God. So why would Peter take that imagery, lion, and bring him into this passage? Well, remember our studies from 1 Peter chapter 5. 
Earlier in the passage, up in verses 1, 2, and 3, he says or uses another imagery to describe us. In verse 2, Peter says to the elders, shepherd the flock that's among you. Be an example to the flock. And so here you have these two animal pictures under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Peter is using so that we can catch an image that this is nothing to mess around with. Like, sometimes I think we're dulled to the fact that this is spiritual warfare. Satan is aiming to devour us, and how would he aim to devour people? Tom Schreiner writes in his commentary, The devil roars like a lion to induce fear in the people of God. In other words, persecution is the roar by which he tries to intimidate believers in the hope that they will capitulate at the prospect of suffering. If believers just deny their faith, then the devil has devoured them, bringing them back into his fold. And so Satan's scheme is to use fear, the, the suffering that's out there, the loss of comfort is out there. And if you lose your comfort, if you lose your security, there's this idea that maybe he can pull some out of Christ's fold and into his own fold to turn you back into the world. So Satan is trying to move us out of this exile mindset that Peter is instructing us with. This is not our home. That's our home. Heaven is our home. He wants us to think this is where we set up our residency here. So I have to have all the pleasure and all the comfort and suffering in this world shouldn't be an option. To follow Christ, however, means that we will face different levels of suffering. So one way that Satan accomplishes this in the lives of people, one way that he aims to accomplish this in the lives of Christians Christians is to bring you and I into levels of suffering that causes Christians to abandon the faith. He is tempting us to say in our hearts, following Jesus into the world is not worth it for me. It causes me to suffer. I'm losing my comfort and I'm living with suffering. And so you see this, this same kind of thought in verse 9 where he is involved in the suffering. Verse 9 says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The big picture here is that you have to realize that Satan's plan to devour you is to simply draw you away from Christ by showing you the world. Here's how you can live in pleasure, or you can suffer. Here's what you're going to get for following Christ. Oh, isn't it so much better to live in pleasure? Specifically, how might Satan use these tactics in your life? What would be some tactics that Satan would use to attack Christians and aim to devour them? Well, number one could be the idea of self-serving choices are better than difficult, sufferable obedience to God. Self-serving choices are better than hard, sufferable, obedient decisions for God. So we see this, we see Satan using this, Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Here is Satan arriving in Eden and tempting Eve. The serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die if you disobey God. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes, they're going to be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so what Satan was dangling out in front of Adam and Eve is, here is the promise of pleasure that I can offer you. And if you don't go down this path, man, you'll never know it, which means you're going to lose out on pleasure and suffer. Second way that Satan aims to devour Christians is with self-serving lies being better than truth-telling. For us to walk in lies and live lies rather than sharing the truth. So Acts chapter 5, I referenced this earlier, Acts chapter 5, 1 through 3, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And so the idea here is that Satan would lead people into pleasure if they are willing to compromise the truth. Now, to walk in the truth means I'm going to suffer, I'm going to lose out. And so to walk in a lie, Satan promises it will be far better than truth-telling. So to tell your small group about sin in your life, to tell your spouse the truth about what happened can be humiliating. Christian, you don't want that kind of suffering. Like, just deny the truth and walk in the lie. Satan's got a grip on you. Another tactic that he uses are self-serving relationships are better than brotherly love within the church. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Um, does it take work to love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Absolutely. I mean, we know that. It takes work to love anybody. Sometimes little squabbles pop up, and Satan wants to put a little wedge right in between the church of Christ, and wants things to fragment and fall apart. And I'm not addressing anything specific with that statement. But we just know, as we've walked together as a church and walked as Christians, that Satan wants to ruin those relationships. But relationships within the body of Christ are a mark of the Spirit of God in you. And Satan says, I just want to lure you away. You got a problem with this person? You got a problem with that person? You know, it's not worth suffering. It's not worth reconciling. So Satan's goal is to lure you from God's people, lure you from the flock and into the world with thoughts that God really isn't that great. God really doesn't care what you do with your life. No one should really tell you what to do. We feel that pull. Satan wants to devour your faith, your commitment to Christ. But there is something else that needs to be considered in this context as well. Is God using any of that in your life for his purposes. Um, there is, I'm not a martial arts expert at all, but there, there's one of these martial arts, Taekwondo or Kung Fu or something like that, where the defender is taught how to use the momentum of the other person. And so if somebody comes lunging at you, uh, you're taught how to use their momentum and lunge actually against them. And what you see here in this passage is that 
God is not standing by with his arms crossed saying, man, I really hope that this all works out. I really hope that you make it through. God is actually using the role of Satan in your life for his purposes. At the end of chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, I didn't put it up on the screen. You can look at it in your Bible. He says this, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, oh, I guess I did put it up there, let him not be ashamed But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so here you see suffering taking place again. And when the Bible says that it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, it means that God, it doesn't mean that God is bringing damnation on the household of God. That doesn't make sense. It means like a judge who is going to sit in his chambers and he is getting ready to render a verdict. He's getting ready to proceed forth with his decision. He's getting ready to announce the judgment on something. And what God does in this, and we're going to see more of this here in a little bit of God's involvement, Satan is at work in your life and as you resist him and as you're firm in the faith, God is rendering a verdict about the genuineness of your faith in Jesus as Lord based on how you respond to Satan's schemes. Okay, so sometimes you enter into trials to test or be tested. And what verses 16 and 17 are saying is that these schemes that Satan is throwing at you, God is right there and he is rendering a verdict about the genuineness of your faith in Jesus as Lord. So every time you're in one of these schemes, from a human perspective now, it's an opportunity for you to remember, my faith tells me that Jesus is Lord and God is honored with that faith. And as I'm lured away or tempted to walk into sin or defect from the faith, I'm going to remember Jesus is Lord and God is looking at my faith and rendering a verdict about it. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. The reality that this is driving home is that we are in a battle with Satan. Satan is aiming to devour us. So Peter leads us to a Christian response. Point number two. Your Christian responsibility is to resist Satan. Okay, so he uses several imperatives in this section. In verse 8, we see the two imperatives. We see you must be alert, sober-minded, Um, we have to be aware like a deer with its head and its ears turned up when the presence of danger is lurking. Like we know something is really here. Satan is up to no good. We must know that in this present reality, we are in a war. And it's so important for us to realize this and just not go along with with the world or with this Christianese language that God is just making us happy and, and we're good. Satan is out to destroy your soul. And I think as we prayed for the young people, um, young people, your church family loves you. And we long for you to see that this life is war. Satan is out to destroy you. As a young person, 14, 15, 16-ish, I was unaware that Satan was using worldliness as a scheme to devour my faith in Jesus Christ. 
I was unaware that my flirtations with the world, my nonchalant, non-caring attitude, and my word was a net that Satan was throwing upon my life. And my thought pattern was basically this. I'm a Christian. I just don't need to be an active one. I can coast through my life, go with the flow, claim Christ as my Savior, and God is all good with that. But as we're coming through 1 Peter, we're seeing faith endures through Satan's schemes. Faith is willing to stand with Christ even if it means the loss of pleasure. Uh, For me in particular, I was in a Christian school where Christ was proclaimed by the teachers. But the students had pretty much mastered the art of hypocrisy. There was sex, there was drug abuse, there was vandalism, stealing, swearing. All of it were blended into the student body. And we knew in our own ways how to say the right things around the teachers. And so many young people were walking away from the Lord. And I think my parents at the time, they saw the inconsistencies of what a Christian discipleship should look like. And they were concerned that I would go down the wrong path in all of that. And I was flirting with it for sure. And so what they did, and I'm not calling parents to do this. I'm not saying public school, homeschool, Christian school, or anything like that. I'm just sharing what God was doing in my life. My dad came to me between my ninth and 10th grade year. And he said, Nate, uh, mom and I are considering sending you to public school. Would you consider doing that? And he didn't want to put me in a context that I would chafe against. And um, we thought about it. We prayed about it. And I said, okay. So I go into the public school now as a 16-year-old. And what's true about the public school is nobody plays the Christian game. There's no Christianese in the public school. You are either going to be a Christ follower or you're not. There's no use in saying I'm a Christian with all of these other young people who don't name Christ. And so God opened my eyes to the reality that there is a clear difference now between those who are claiming Christ as Savior. And so I found this little band of Christians, and we did Bible studies in the morning. Um, God led me to some moral friends in the midst of the public school. He had me weaving in and out of worldliness. But he led me to this place where I saw so many people are pleasure-seeking, looking for parties on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night, hoping that this is the end all. And if they missed that, they thought they were suffering. And God was showing me, no, there is much more pleasure and contentment and joy in a relationship with him, much more peace than being this treasure hunter seeking for self-seeking pleasures all over the place. And he told me, this kind of suffering is worth it. Even if you get a strange eye, even if you get a strange comment, even if you get something where you're not on the inside anymore, but you're on the outside. And the reality was, I became aware, this is a war. Young people, your church, again, wants you to know that you are living a span of life called a vapor, and this vapor is a war against Satan. You have to be alert and be sober-minded to it. Satan is aiming to take you down. So we go to the third imperative, and that is to resist him. It's a military term. Here's an army that's defending a city from an incoming army. With Satan, we resist him. 
This is a life of constant resistance. He is not going away. You're not going to kill him. You must continually resist him. And the text tells us how we do it here. It says you resist him by being firm in the faith. Resist him being firm in the faith. So back at the beginning of the book, in chapter 1, verse 5, the text says that we, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have to be firm in this faith that when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, I've been transformed, Jesus is my Lord, and now I'm walking with him through life, and this world is not my home. God is going to bring me to this eternal home soon, the heavens, the new Jerusalem. This is my faith, and God uses it to guard me all the way through this battle that we're facing against Satan. You have to be firm in the faith that Jesus is your Savior. Second reality here is that knowing this, that Christians have experienced your suffering as well. You see this in verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. All right, so think about this. God is using the experiences of other Christians to encourage you to continue to endure. So a few weeks ago, we were up in Minnesota, and um, we were up along Lake Superior. And there's a number of rivers that flow into Lake Superior. And if you've been up there, that side of the lake is very rocky. Um, the rivers that come down to the lake, they have cliffs. And so a couple of us dads took the kids up to this cliff, and there was maybe a 12 to 15-foot cliff, and we did some jumping into the river, and it was just high enough to be spooky. Well, Seth, this is going somewhere, I promise. <laughs> Seth, who is our youngest, he's seven years old, and he's our little daredevil. He really wanted to do it as well. And so we took him down through the trail, and there was maybe eight to ten of us that were doing this cliff jumping. And Uncle Ben went first. That's my older brother. He went off, landed well. It was a good splash. Then some of the nephews went. They landed well. It was a good splash. Then some of the nieces went off, and that was good. Then one of the nephews stepped up and said, I'm scared, and he stepped back. And then he stepped up again, I'm scared. Somebody else went, and then eventually he went. So then it's me and Seth, and I believe Natalie was up on the cliff at that point too. So I thought, I need to jump first so that I'm in the water when Seth jumps. So I jump, splash. And then there's Seth, our seven-year-old, who can barely swim. And I watched him at the top kind of take that deep breath, and his young little frame, you could see his ribs because he was so nervous and inhaling so, so much. And then he did it. He took the step and jumped in, splashed into the water, bobbed up, and we got him over to the side. Well, later on, I asked Seth, hey, man, what was going through your head when you were at the top of that cliff? What were you thinking right before you jumped? And he said this, all I could think about was deadness. That was kind of disturbing as a dad to hear your seven-year-old say, all I could think about was deadness. 
But what was going on is he looked at the challenge, and if he just looked at the challenge, he was thinking to himself, I'll never accomplish this. I'll never come through this. I'll never be able to do it. But what he was able to do was he was able to see Uncle Ben, he was able to see his cousins, and as he got to this side of this cliff, what was going on in his mind was a mental reality, but then there was also this true reality that everyone who went through it made it. His mind was telling him something not true, but then everybody else was telling him something that was true. You'll make it. And that's what Peter is talking about here. Knowing that the same kinds of experiences, same kinds of suffering are being accomplished. And some of your verses or some of your translations have the word experience. It's an interesting word there. The New American Standard translated it as accomplished. Some of your brothers have accomplished this. It's, it's been fulfilled already in their lives. And I think that's a better translation. It's telling them they've come through this trial already. And the question is, well, how did they do that? Certainly they didn't do it in their own strength as we're going to see here. They came through it and what the believers do is they look at this and they say, okay, God brought that suffering believer through that trial who didn't defect from the faith. God brought that brother or that sister through the trial and he or she didn't defect from the faith. It's meant to be an encouragement for all of us here this morning. So Christian brother, Christian sister, struggling in a marriage, struggling with a child, struggling with an addiction, just struggling and you're going through suffering, you're like, I'm the only one who's gone through this and God's word has some hope for you. No, 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 no. There are other believers around the world who have gone through this this morning and God's grace has brought them through. You're not alone. It's another reason to be part of a local church where you're sharing what's going on in your life and you're going to hear from somebody else who may not have gone through that this week, but they went through it 20 years ago and they can share how God brought them through. The idea is that God will bring you through this too, but resist him firm in the faith, knowing that others have gone through this. So up to this point, here's what we've seen. We've seen human responsibility, these imperatives. Be alert, be sober-minded, resist him, firm in the faith. And here's how Peter closes. He closes with divine sovereignty here. So point number three, God's divine sovereignty will bring you all the way home. Okay, you are responsible to resist Satan. That's why those imperatives are there. But now, as we turn to verse 10 and 11, you see just this incredible backdrop of who God is. God's divine sovereignty will bring you all the way home. So verse 10 says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And what's interesting here is in the Greek, the front end of the verse is the God of all grace, the one who called you into his eternal glory. By the way, after you have suffered a little while. And so just in the original language, the emphasis is on God here at the beginning, the God of all grace, the God who has called you. He's going to do something for you. And so I've just thought, here's this imagery of a lion 
that is opening his mouth, roaring, threatening us, aiming to devour us. And there we are as a soldier out on this plane, and we see this lion that is facing us, and we're told, resist him, resist him, be firm in the faith, don't let him devour you. And then Peter closes this teaching portion of the book with verse 11, where he says, God is behind you. And so you look behind you, and there's this great fortress with all the weight of heaven aimed at Satan and also being provided to you to bring you through this battle. That's, that's the picture. Here we are, little Christians right here. Here's the gaping mouth of Satan, and then behind us, all of God's grace and the God who called you into his eternal glory, he's right there for you. Now notice, again, who God is. He's a God of grace with undeserved kindness. We did not earn this grace in fact, we sinned against God, and what we deserve is eternal judgment. But God, in his kindness, he sends Jesus into the world to take the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And not only did Jesus take the punishment that we deserve for our sins, but God also offers Jesus' life of perfect obedience as a gift for each one of us. And when we receive him in faith, we are God's. Now we're one of his. And I've got good news for you. God never loses. God never loses with his people. God is going to bring his people through the suffering. And you see this with the language where it says, the God who has called you to his eternal glory. So here's the God of all grace who is saving you from the jaws of Satan. And he's the God who has called you. So now you are his possession and now he tells us what he's going to do, and he strikes the hammer four times. He says he's going to restore us, meaning, hey, Christians, hold on. There will be no remaining sinful defects in you. You are going to be completely restored into perfect life with God. You're going to be restored with no sin in you. And this is just an encouragement for me, especially when I'm confessing sin, especially sins of the heart and sins of the mind. I'm not always going to have this battle. He's going to restore me. He's also going to confirm us. When we stand before him, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. He's going to strengthen us. All of our weakness and struggle is going to be gone. And he's going to establish us. We will be complete, lacking in nothing in the eternal state. And then verse 11 says, to him is the dominion forever and ever, amen. Satan doesn't have anything on him. You can trust God with your life. And so what we see here as Peter is rounding out this book, Christian, fight. Like you're in a war. You've got a responsibility today. Be alert. Resist Satan. But then here's divine sovereignty. You've got God on your back. God's going to bring you through this weekend. God's going to bring you through this week. He's going to bring you through this year. He's going to bring you through this life. And he's going to bring you home into his eternal glory. And so this means that while we're fighting Satan, we have hope. We have the hope that God is for us. If he is for us, who can be against us? Church, be encouraged to continue to fight knowing that God will ultimately win. Let's pray.